Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, we had to follow up because with our last recording, we talked about the tease that Chris McCord gave of his fire graphic. And we kind of broke down what the meme meant. And I'm still glad we did that just because there's some background context for a lot of people who are newer in the community and don't know all of the ways that Phoenix and LiveView have kind of, in some ways, been technical disruptors, shaking things up and making it a whole lot better for our community. Well, wouldn't you know it, like the day after we recorded, Chris McCord actually announced what it was, and that went quite large on social media. So you probably already know about it. (laughs) You've probably already seen something. But we just have to mention it here. Chris announced Flame, which is the library he was teasing, and he published a blog post that includes a video demo. And rather than break it all down here, we actually just invited Chris McCord to come on and talk with us about it. So stay tuned for right after the news, we will jump in with Chris and be able to have a a longer, more in-depth discussion about Flame. So I'm really looking forward to that. All right. And next up, we got LiveView Native. LiveView Native has a beta release. We're still talking early, 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 early stuff, but we're at version (laughs) 0.2.0.beta.1. Lots of uncertainty in all those numbers, but Brian Cardarella at ElixirConf US this past year set forth their roadmap and said that they had some refactorings that they were trying to do to split the code base up into a more well-sensible organization, I guess, right? And so it would be a little bit before things could be useful in the hands of developers. And so that now seems to be that moment where now it's in the hands of some developers that can contribute. So the final release is scheduled around January 15th, final release. I'm not sure what that really means in, in terms of like the big picture of Live view native, I guess, to drop the beta tags and stuff, but it's still 0.2, right? So big asterisks, <laughs> but around January 15th. So at least if you have time off during the holidays, you've got a new toy you can play with, <laughs> a little live view native toy. So some RCs are still expected as well. Blog posts and videos are promised. And as usual, will probably come out like tomorrow <laughs> after we record. So we'll keep you updated when we see it. And next up, just wanted to share that Jason Stibbs wrote an article about using machine learning to search all of the hex packages. So this is part two of his little series that he did on this. And he shows how to use a fly.io GPU with an Elixir app to use text embeddings, which is having machine learning run over blocks of text and create vectors and then having a vector database for storing those and then being able to look them up faster. And what this all means is you end up with a more intelligent approach to document searching. You know, we're still really early days in the whole AI ML thing. And in his wrap-up section, he shares some of his painfully learned lessons. <laughs> so that's that's worth checking out too. But I just thought it was so cool. You know, like, hey, let's see if we can make all the different hex packages so much more searchable. And how does that work? And what is that like? And And how do we actually deploy something like that? And then, you know, the difficulty of getting the Docker images and, you know, needing all of the NVIDIA requirements that are part of, you know, for for this hardware and and all that stuff. So yeah, lots of fun times that we're experiencing with the whole AI ML boom. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of experiments around like Hexdoc search being like multi-package aware and all that kind of stuff. Because like, I know that's been a complaint for a while. Like Ash, you know, has a bunch of different 
uh, packages, but they're all, they need to be like cohesively understood, right? Same with Ecto and Ecto SQL. Phoenix is like that with Phoenix and Phoenix Live View and Phoenix HTML and Phoenix Ecto, like all these kind of shared ecosystem packages. And, you know, not that Hexdocs is terrible because it's by far the best solution out there in the developer world. But when, when these packages are related and you kind of need to jump between the two, it can be a little little a little hard to remember that they exist <laughs> well you're absolutely right because like sometimes the thing i'm looking for i don't know if it's in ecto or phoenix ecto or ecto sql yeah right i don't know where to look for it so i end up having to remember that there are these multiples and jump around just this morning i i, I was i thought that a path helper for verified routes was in phoenix live view for some reason i don't know why nope it's in phoenix i had to go jump in, into the <laughs> different area. Anyway, so I'm very curious of what these experiment, experiments around hex docs and searching is going to come up with. And if anything like, you know, any solutions will like make its way into, into, you know, X doc proper, like that, mm-hmm. that would be interesting. All right. Well, moving on from that, I have a little update for one of my libraries is daytime parser. So uh daytime parser, if you haven't come across it, you should probably regard it as daytime guesser <laughs> more than a parser because there's lots of guessing involved here. The whole goal is to take some string and turn it into a date, daytime or time. And so as you can imagine, that's quite difficult to do that with a reasonable amount of accuracy, but it does it pretty well. There's like really comprehensive test suite there. And so if you're ever in the position that you need to parse strings into dates, this library can help you. And it's using the power of Nimble Parsec to do that efficiently. And so here's the update on it. The library itself has been out for a while, but releases have slowed down because, well, as long as it works, it works. But the latest release drops the old Timex requirement. Timex, a lot of folks probably familiar with that. It's a good time-related library as well. I used to use it a lot more back in like early Elixir days, but then like the calendar and the daytime stuff got a lot better in Elixir Core. So I try not to use Timex anymore. But one of the things that Timex can do that Elixir Core can't is understand time zones a little bit better. And so that's why the daytime parser was using it. But unfortunately, (laughs) my parser was leveraging a bug in Timex. (laughs) (laughs) And that bug was fixed in a later version. So I had to lock it down, which meant that folks that were using my parser had to also use like a three-year-old probably at this point version of Timex, which is just very unfortunate. That bug allowed it to parse POSIX time zone abbreviations. So if you had like EDT or EST in there, it would know. It would it would kind of know that that was Eastern time where it would assume that was Easter time. But it had a hard time knowing what like PDT was because that wasn't a POSIX time apparently. I don't mm. time zone. Apparently, I don't know. There was a fair amount of like hard coding it to like help the anyway. It was just it was not good. So it was a lot of work to get Timex to be dropped. Now the parser has to like in house parsing time zone files like the I A N A files. <laughs> so now it's like half of the TZ data library <laughs> and half like its own thing. There's a lot of overlap. It's very targeted to what what the parser needs it for. Anyway, so it, it ships with those files. It parses it during compilation. You can customize it to like go back further in time if you need to or stay current for faster compilation. It's pretty comprehensive, pretty flexible. One of the things that you might notice with this new version is that the time zone selected is now slightly different because it used to prefer, because of Timex, the 
POSIX time zone. So you would see EST5 EDT, for example, a lot of the time. That's not a real time zone, like currently. That is a POSIX time zone that's like generic. So now with this new version, it's going to be using the Olson format, which is what you'll see like America slash New York, America slash Chicago, that kind of stuff. That's actually current, a little longer, a little wordier, but that's the actual like real time zones in today's format. So should be functionally the same for the most part. But anyway, that's a big long update to DateTime Parser 1.2.0 for probably all two of you out there. But there you go. <laughs> Interesting development. And now it's out. And last up, just wanted to mention that we saw Paraxial 2.0 was announced. Paraxial is a company that is a Elixir focused security service. But this is talking about a server side hosted tool. I just thought it was cool and wanted to mention it because, you know, if you're one of those companies that have many Elixir apps deployed, no, not just like the single app, but you maybe have a number of things. Maybe they're like different services that are like service-oriented architecture all hooking together. It's just a lot of things to keep track of. And what I liked is the security-focused dashboard view of all these different apps and tracking like what versions of Elixir they're on and their dependencies. So you're getting more of a a view of like, oh, there's a known vulnerability in this particular thing. And we have this older service that's over here, then it impacts that one. So we should probably go and get that updated first. Anyway, so like that dashboard view, I think is really cool. And, you know, as an early Elixir adopter, there were like zero security options available when I got started. And, you know, you have these companies where they're accustomed to like maybe Java or something else and .NET. And there's like all these different options. And they like have these expectations that you should have these same kinds of things and like, hey, if, if it's not available, maybe we sh- can't even use this tool. This, this It's like too, too fringe. Got to check all those security boxes. Yes. And so I just love that we have some great Elixir focused options now. And Paraxial being one of those and this tool also being, you know, something that give you a more security focused view of all the applications that you're serving and maintaining. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Chris McCord. Chris, welcome back to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. So I'm super happy to have you because, you know, we talked about in the, in the news of top of this episode and news last week that you had been teasing this new library, which now we know is called Flame. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about that. When I noticed how you talked about Flame on social media in the various different places, there were a lot of people who I could tell were new to the community. Like we talked about the meme of what Phoenix and LiveView have killed in the past. And people were like, <laughs> it was new to them. Like, what, what's happened to REST? Are you killing my REST? It's like, no, you know, like, that's not what we're talking about. So I think it's good to still just have a, a short little introduction. Like, Chris, you know, who are you? And who are you in the Elixir community for those who don't know you? Yeah, so I'm the creator of the Phoenix Web Framework, which is a web framework like Laravel or Rails uh, for their respective communities. This whole meme thing, yeah, it's like I I don't do like I don't tweet memes that often, but it's like (laughs) I got like 
a hundred thousand views. I'm like, oh, like lo- <laughs> wow. lowest level of effort for maximal uh, ex- exposure. <laughs> but yeah, so that was about like, you know, this killing idea people took a little bit too literally, but like my goal for the last, I don't know, several years has been to like ruthlessly eliminate layers of the stack, like in programming in general. So like live view, like, you know, you just don't even think about HTTP anymore. Um, so that was kind of the idea of like, yes, REST and HTTP and GraphQL still exist. They can be great. You can do great things with them. But like my goal is just like obviate that even from the like programmer's mind while they're building stuff. Uh, so some people got a little bit angry, felt a certain way about it. But yeah, the goal is kind of even whether it's with Phoenix or with the new uh, flame pattern is just like let us actually just focus on building things and just eliminate layers of complexity from the stack entirely. Well, should we just jump right into it then? Because like, so you, you just mentioned right there, the flame pattern. And so, you know, we're talking about a library, but you're also talking about a pattern. So maybe you can introduce like, what is it you mean when you say a pattern? Yeah, that's the first time I've tried to like brand a pattern like this. And we'll get into like, it's simple. It's not like a genius uh, stroke here. But the idea is like, I want this to be generally applicable because like the whole serverless space for me has always been silly. Like the, I mean, it started, the naming started with like, it's a silly name. There's still a server. I can get into like a, a whole rant about the whole space, but for, for me, it, it didn't live up to any of the promises it made except for a, a couple areas. So I've always been unhappy with uh, the idea of let's to get what we want in our applications from a scale perspective, we need to write it in some proprietary service. We can't deploy it. It adds all this complexity. You know, we have to let someone else run everything. How do we run it locally? How do we test it? And it's like, I, I've never wanted to have to deal with any of that. It's like, I just want to focus on building my app. But there were a couple of things that are really difficult when you're building your app. And it's like elastic scale is really hard. And how do you do that? So there was a couple areas there with serverless where I'm like, you know, they do have something there that I don't have an answer to of like, there is this infrastructure side. How could we just make it like, you know, how could we just abstract that? And uh, that's where this flame pattern comes in to say like, you know, what if we could just take any app code that you already have? And you just wrap it in a function, and then that function runs on like a short-lived ephemeral infrastructure using the same infrastructure that your app already runs on. And that's where this kind of idea started, where it's like that would give us the elastic scale, and you wouldn't have to like buy into this proprietary serverless space. You wouldn't have to break into microservices and do you know this uh, labyrinth of complexity just to get this idea of elastic scale. So. Uh, so yeah, the, the pattern itself is, you know, kind of a cute name, but the, the idea with flame is it stands for fleeting Lambda application for modular execution. Since I'm going to name this thing, I wanted to have it convey a lot there. So like, it's a fun name because like flame with Phoenix, you know, I'm burning serverless to the ground. Uh, there's this thing that like, you know, it, it lights up and burns quickly. And then once it has nothing, no fuel left, it extinguishes. So there's actually a lot there where that works well, not just like being this like Phoenix type name. Um, but I wanted to specifically have an acronym because just like RPC's remote procedure call, like it conveys what it's doing. Uh, I wanted to get a couple ideas in there because like, just like a remote procedure call, a uh, flame is very similar, except it's like an RPC to a copy of your application that you call into and then it shuts itself down. So there's like that to pack into this name. So it's like yeah. fleeting or this level of this idea of short lived ephemeral needs to be in there. It needs to focus on like, it's actually your application. This is like really important to me, like conveying that it's not just calling to some service or, or Lambda or microservice, right? Because then you have all this other complexity of building that thing, talking mm-hmm. to it, deploying it on its own. It's the idea, like it's just your app, but it's like a fleeting copy of your app. 
And then this module execution is a big idea as well, because it's like, what if we could just treat our whole app like this Lambda idea where we have this like short-lived thing. So we're kind of like uh, co-opting the term Lambda here, but it's like we have the short-lived thing that we can call, except we can kind of just slice at any layer of our app uh, for that modular execution. So there's a lot there. It's like a long acronym, but like it was intentionally named to like pack in these ideas. That F, that that fleeting part is doing a lot of heavy lifting just for what it's worth. (laughs) 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 Without that F, oh boy, uh, we'd be in trouble with our acronyms. Yeah, the lame stuff. How, how concerned are you about the crowd that doesn't capitalize their acronyms in Codebase? Are you happy that you've upset them or or not? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough thing because like I don't even know how to refer to it. Like the library, the Elixir library, like the OTP app name is lowercase flame, right? And then I I caps I cap the the module namespace, and then when I talk about it online, do I always caps it? It's more effort. <laughs> but no, but I think like when I'm so like for me personally, like I've thought about this a lot. Like when I'm referring to the pattern, it's caps. And then like, whether I'm talking about the Elixir library, it's like a toss up, whether I, I capitalize it or not. Yeah. So, so now in everybody's code base, there's going to be an HTTP adapter, right? And it's, it's a toss up on whether it's all caps because it's an acronym because that's how English works. But yeah. And that would be good to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, the, the acronym is important though. There's the big H and small TTP because of, I don't know, reasons, I guess, but yeah, you, you've just. You've just like you're like Moses. You've divided the sea now. You're you're, you're creating a whole groups of people that like or dislike this now. <laughs> yep. Naming convention camps. Yes, yeah. people are going to raise their pitchforks. <laughs> you touched on some of your motivations there for why you created this. Like just that you you wanted to have an answer for this. The functions as a service. The the lambda right. Is there anything that like prompted you to take this on now or like that? unlocked this idea like whoa i think now is a good time is there anything that kind of said you know that that drove you to do it yeah i can plug i mean fly was really why this happened jason uh, stibbs and i uh, jason works at fly he's a co-worker uh, of mark and, and myself but he's also on the phoenix core team and we were just chatting this was maybe a year ago of like what a an elixir like lambda thing would look like architecturally like how would we build it like to, to give other people this way to like run Elixir in this in this elastic scale mode. And we were talking like what that would look like and the way the Fly infrastructure works is like you can start up this lightweight instance called a machine and you give it a Docker image and it runs that Docker image. So we were like, oh, well, you know, it'd be tough. Like people would need to like somehow get the dependencies they want into that image and it's a separate deployment pipeline. Basically, it has all the caveats of any other Lambda service. I mean, basically, it would just be like, how can we make any of us Lambda where you give your image or the Google, the basic Google has this as, as well, where you just give it a container, it runs it. So it's like, it wouldn't be doing anything interesting, but we were talking through what that would look like to build on top of fly. It just gives you the ability to run your favorite language, but it has all these caveats. So it's like in the back of my head, I'm like, this is still, you know, it'd be nice to run Elixir and have this run. But in, in talking through this, we were like, wait a second, like you give it a, an image, uh, a Docker image. And it's like the way fly machines work currently for your app is just, you give it a Docker image and it runs your app. So it was like, what if we can just start this uh, ephemeral machine, but we give it the same image that your app's running? And then it was like, okay, wow, that works. <laughs> like in like 24 hours, we had like a, a proof of concept prototype that like, of course that works. You give it an image and it runs. So then it's just like merely the matter of writing the coordination of like when the app starts up, how do we get it to, you know, pass and just that slice of the app, that function and run it. And then how do you like pull resources? And the rest was just kind of like boring details 
the idea really came for, from talking through uh, with Jason of like, how would we build this on fly? And then we realized uh, it's actually really easy to do. And it, should, it could be generally applicable to other hosts. And that, that proved to be true as well, because the Beam has all these built-in facilities where you know, you just need to call out to some programmable API saying, give me an instance. And as long as that's on your network with the app, it should all just work because the Beam has distribution built in. Uh, so that was really the start of it, of like trying to think about how we would build a uh, containerized Lambda equivalent within Fly's infrastructure. And it quickly became obvious that like we don't need to do that. Uh, we can go one level up and just do away with this idea entirely. So that's, yeah, that, that's the start. And then it took me several months to actually ship this because, you know, live view and and other things, but finally got some time to focus on it. The feeling of this, the feeling of using a flame in your app code, it, it kind of feels like task async and throw at some logic, right? That's that's the way it feels, which is really great because it abstracts away all that other junk, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm I'm curious about that that part where so it works with Fly now and the coordination for like for Fly and knowing the resources to pull up, right? There's an API for Fly machines. I assume that it's calling out to that API says, give me this machine. There's got to be a lot of like infrastructure related details that are kind of hidden away or configured at least. Like, how does it know what Docker image to show? Like, is that now like an, uh, an environment variable? You know, are, are we checking for certain things? I guess there's a lot of conventions as well. What's kind of that stuff that is hidden away, abstracted away? to work with a backend like Fly. Sure, yeah, so for Fly, it's actually just one, you give it your API token and, and you're done. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. I do wanna to touch on, you mentioned task async. So yeah, it's just like the idea of in Elixir, we have this task primitive. So you're like, I wanna do something concurrently, I just wrap my code in a task async in a function. So it's the same idea where it's like, I wanna do something concurrently, but also elastically scaled. And you just give it a function, you wrap it in a flame call. So it'd be just like, you know, if you're not in an Elixir, it would be just like if you could do a, you know, new promise in JavaScript and that promise happened to run on ephemeral infrastructure. And the cool thing with all this, at least in Elixir, is we can, any variable that that function closes over uh, just gets captured by the function and sent across to the copy of the app. So it's like, you don't have to jump through these hoops. It's just like that whole function gets sent, including any rich data structure in your app, no matter what it is, uh, gets sent over there. So that was the idea we were taking to this flame model of like use the existing concurrency like primitives in your app, except it runs, you know, on a completely different machine. And uh, on the host side or the, what we call the backend side, Fly makes it super easy because the Docker image is available as a, an environment export. Mm. So that was the insight that Jason and I had of like, well, well, shoot, how do we actually get the app's Docker image? And it's like, oh, it's like already there in an environment variable. We have to do nothing uh, other than just like pass that same export up to the API call. In other environments, there's going to be more configuration. Uh, there already exists, as of yesterday, a Flame Kubernetes library. And I haven't looked at their documentation, but on some level, internally, you're going to have to tell Kubernetes back in, you know, some level of configuration. And I'm assuming it's something very similar where it knows the container that your app's running and it's getting it up to the, to the backend itself. But the goal is you know, in user land, uh, other than like configuring the service once within your Kubernetes uh, setup, you're going to not think about it. And it should be almost entirely portable across, you know, if you're running on Fly or Kubernetes and using these flame calls, it shouldn't be like, you, could, you should be able to actually like shop around, uh, so to speak, and take your Elixir app with elastic scale, elastic scale uh, wherever you want. All right. So, so given that, right, we're shipping code across the wire. This assumes that your app can be clustered together when these machines spin up and all, right? So it can... RPC over and take care of its payload. When applications are being designed for offloading work elsewhere, 
I know a typical pattern so far uh, established by job queues in all sorts of ecosystems, ours included with like Obin and EXQ. There's typically like a uh, in the application tree, like in the in the startup logic. There's I've seen a typical way of saying, "Hey, this is a worker. Don't start up my endpoint." Or this is a this is a web facing one. Don't start up. Don't process any jobs and things like that. So how how do I intersect flames with that kind of architecture? Do I do I need to worry about that? Do I need to know that this is a flame? So don't accept web requests and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. It's like the Elixir, uh, the way Elixir apps start is just like we we carefully list their order and they start they start up in a specific order and shut down in a specific order. And that affords a lot of interesting things for us. Uh, one, we can get like this guidance guaranteed uh, dependency of services in the app. But then we can also like just turn things on and off at will. So uh, if you did it the naive way and you started up this flame thing, that did, let, let's say like video transcoding, like you don't need to serve web requests, uh, the, the Phoenix endpoint would boot up. It would bind to like local hosts and then no traffic would ever reach it because your infrastructure load balancer never sent anything. So it's like, if you didn't think about this case, uh, everything would just work. You get your PubSub server, your database pool. But then as you want to actually optimize this and say, I don't need a web server running. And you know what? In these video transcriptions, I only need like one or two database connections. I don't need to start up my default pool size. So you'd start configuring it to be like flame aware of like in this context of this flame, this is what I want to, you know, I don't need a web server. I want a small database pool. You can turn off your, like the DNS cluster or lib cluster you can turn off because you're, you're automatically connecting with the parent anyway. And Erlang creates a full mesh for you the moment you connect to something. So you can start toggling these things on and off, but like the naive mode will just work. It just won't be as optimal. We talked a little bit already about the different backends, like that you're shipping with a fly aware backend. Then there's a, a local development backend. That's worth just touching on. And then you said, oh, okay, there's already a Kubernetes one, which I think totally makes sense because when you think of Kubernetes, Kubernetes exposes services, which, you know, the, the apps that are being hosted by Kubernetes can actually talk to those services and make requests, you know, if, if nothing else, like what is running and then issue requests for new things to run if they're given permissions, right? It's very granular in what it can do. That's really interesting. I'm sure there's, you know, Google... I'm sure they have Kubernetes, you know, that's a big thing where they host it there. So that'd be an option for people there. You know, I started thinking about AWS, like maybe someone will write like a Terraform <laughs> kind of little package. Because like one of the things I think is interesting is the the library, you can set a pool size. So even if the infrastructure of where I'm hosted doesn't have fast spin up and shutdown, right? I can still say, maintain a pool of at least this number of running instances and then at some point maybe grow that pool to a larger size and it might take you know maybe it takes a couple minutes to spin it up and that's fine but like i can just kind of maybe build in some of that buffer into my settings i don't know what are your thoughts on that yeah this is a, a big topic because i think some of the initial reaction from the serverless crowd when like just for example fly can spin up a, a stock phoenix app with ffmpeg on there uh, is the example app i had that takes three seconds to Take the image, uh, place it, uh, get it networked back to the parent, running the full Elixir Phoenix application. So in three seconds, we can have the whole app running ready for work, which is fantastic. But then people at the Hacker News comments were like, oh, well, you know, my lamb has been up in half a second. So, you know, it's that's great, but it's too slow. And this is where they're missing the nuance of like the way we start 
applications in Elixir is like in this correct order and the app is not serving traffic. So like your parent app that is the web server won't actually, you know, contact your infrastructure proxy in, until it's up and running, right? So the idea is like you run this flame pool and you can say, I always want two of these running, one of these running, and you give it a minimum count. And that means it's going to block the application startup until it actually provisions those instances running a copy of the app. So like when your app is actually being served traffic from the load balancer, it has these things up and running and they're hot already. And then to dynamically scale and grow the pool, you are going to incur a potential cost and then you're going to have to get into like, you know, if that takes a long time, you're going to have to do like predictive scheduling and for fly the three second baseline for me is completely acceptable. But yeah, if you're, if it takes two minutes, you're going to have to make sure that you actually have, you know, a number of these uh, ready to roll when the app starts up. But that just is the way we start up applications in Elixir. So I think it's mostly mitigated by the pool. And the other thing to keep in mind that I think people miss with this kind of one-to-one Lambda comparison or functions as a service comparison is like when the pool starts, it's almost always going to be running lots of concurrent uh, operations. So when you configure your, a pool, you say, I want this pool to be named like my FFmpeg runner. I'm going to give it a minimum number of instances to start, maximum number to run. So I don't, you know, just vastly over provision. And then I give it a max concurrency to say, I want to be running a certain number of concurrent operations per instance. So it's not like a one-to-one where I pay the three-second costs and then another user comes in and scales the pool. I got to wait three seconds. It's like, no, we're sending like as many concurrent operations per instance as we can. So it's it's like a one-to-many, not a one-to-one. Uh, whereas like people think of actual like functions as a service more as a one-to-one. It's my understanding that AWS does have this idea of like a hot function where you, you won't pay the cost to spin it up cold every time, but it's much more for us a, a one-to-many operation to boot this infrastructure and then uh, send work to it. One of the things I think is totally worth pointing out, like you, you talked about like this counter argument of like, oh, AWS will serve my function in like this fraction of a second, right? But what they don't have in that setup is access to their entire app. They don't have access to their database to do additional queries, to do whatever else they need. You know, they have a very isolated view of, of what this function can do and can access. And so I think that is worth talking about, like that you are booting up an entire image of your app. And, you know, like you're talking about having access to the database. Maybe I don't need a full database pool size. Maybe I'm going to have maybe only two concurrent connections or something like that. Talk about what that means for you and why that's important. Yeah, the whole idea, and Mark, you actually touched on this. You used the, the word I was looking for. The whole idea of Flame is granular scale. So it's like not just auto scaling our app. It's granular elastic scale. And that's just really important because the way that we've auto scaled historically has been like, let's just run more dynos or like run more web servers. And like, that makes no sense to me. It's like, in an effort to like serve more traffic or like operations on our app, we're just like, we just like frantically scale like our web servers to like transcode video. Like it doesn't make sense. It's like the complete wrong level of scale. Like it may work. Like if we just like haphazardly over provision and just pack as many CPU bound tasks in the critical path of our like web server and API, like that might work, it's, but it's not going to be ideal. And that's where the serverless space has capitalized, in my opinion, is like, we don't want this to, you know, block the critical path of our app, but it comes with all these caveats. So the idea for me is like elastic scale with serverless, like the only good thing of serverless, like if you're just building your app as a matter of course, in these proprietary runtimes, like to me, that's entirely silly and it's not justified because none of the promises of serverless is like of not having to over-provision, saving costs, like it all, you know, it's been a farce. I mean, you may pay for a time slice of this function, but you're at a cost to like 
hit the gateway to spin up the function. That's a cost. It costs to actually run the function. And then like Mark alluded to, how do you actually like record the results of how that thing ran? Oh, it's like, well, you, I guess, pull in another proprietary service like SQS. You can queue into SQS that has a cost. Maybe put something on, on S3 that has a cost. Then you go back to your app, write the SQS consumer that has development costs and development time. You pull that into the app and then you're like, oh, well, shoot, I actually had like active subscribers over WebSockets, Phoenix channels or anywhere else in my in my app. How do I get that there? And it's like, oh, well, you just use Amazon uh, SNS to send the notification. So it's like this uh, outrageous amount. Like this is why I've always considered it silly. It's like just to do anything where especially in Elixir, it's something that's going to take like two lines of code has been you pay multiple layers of complexity in terms of cost and development time and just to do something simple. Anger driven development. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be fair here, but like that, that is literally what it takes. And it's like, or in my Elixir app, I could just wrap something in an anonymous function. And if I needed to write to the database as a result of this expensive operation, I just do a repo insert because it's running my whole app. Or I do a pub sub broadcast because it's running my whole app. And I just throw away, it's not even throw away. I don't even think it's just like live view. I don't even think about the steps of what I would have had to do. And this is the idea in my blog posts of like solving a problem versus removing a problem. It's like, I don't make it easy uh, for you to like bring these solutions in to solve the problem. We just remove that. You're not like, you're not like, oh, how do I elastic scale now? Like, oh, well, it's running somewhere else. I have to set up an HTTP endpoint, somehow get that, that message back. It's like, you're not even thinking about that anymore. You're just only thinking about just like when you bring in a task async primitive. It's just another uh, line of thinking of, do I want to have this run concurrently? We already do this in Elixir. Sure, put it in a task. Or now you think, oh, do I actually want this to run elastically? And if the answer is yes, you put it in a flame call. And like, that's the end of your thought process. So this has been my goal with like being able to run your whole app because you're not thinking about the communication layers back and forth. How do we get messages uh, going, database inserts? Like it's just part of the way you build your app, just like if you're running a, a task. So you've, you've taken LiveView and you applied that to serverless, which is great. You just remove all those tedious layers in between, costly layers in between, to the point that where you have to hire a, a, a specific person to understand and manage and keep that up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or you know, pay, you know, pay a premium. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about AWS and how they have all these silly names for all these things that you have to, <laughs> you have to manage. Let me just mention my own little personal experience with that. Because like, when you're in your blog post, you kind of uh, give that example, right, of uh, all these different pieces. Like, if my functions run over there now, how do I get the information from there? And how do I now I, I have to use this other infrastructure? And uh, I, I just had this own my own personal experience. I was at a company and I set up an Elk stack on AWS. And Elk is Elasticsearch, Kibana, and Logstash. That was for internal logging and searching our data and accessing our logs, you know, and getting more business intelligence and insight. And so doing that on AWS ended up costing me more than I expected because, you know, first it's like, all right, well, I'm, I know I'm going to have to have Elasticsearch as a service. And, you know, then you have these other things. But then I start to plug it all in and you know, they had wizards to help me do it. But now it ends up creating some cloud, I don't know, it wasn't cloud front, it was some cloud layer piece that then went into an AWS Lambda. So every log message was going through an AWS Lambda, and then it had to be sent into a queue that ended up getting pushed into uh, Logstash. And like there's transaction costs on every piece of that. And, and forget it if you're across regions too, because they'll, <laughs> they'll double dip, you know? <laughs> you know, it, it ended up being worth it for us 
for the value that it brought, right? But it was just like knowing what that cost was up front was it felt like it was hidden costs and like they're not trying to hide it just i didn't realize i'm going to need all these different layers and all of this is going to be needed just to plug it together to give me this service that i thought would just be you know the elk stack as i was reading that in your blog post i was like oh i feel that i feel that pain (laughs) (laughs) all right i'm going to come back to the phrase you said that it's a it's a pattern right so i know we focused a lot on elixir i know that elixir and the beam makes this much more trivial. I know that infrastructure is a big part of this. And so Fly, you know, made it easy to implement for this. All right. But since you made Live View and therefore you've written all the JavaScript that I don't have to write, (laughs) (laughs) what about my WordPress site? Are you going to write all the PHP that I don't have to write now to get flames on my WordPress site? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, pa- the, the, the beautiful thing about a pattern is some, it's someone else's problem to write in, in another language. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think like, you know, this Elixir is extremely well suited for this. We're spoiled in that regard. And we can touch on, we can also do process placement uh, elastically, which we can touch on uh, in a little bit later. The goal for me is like just to lay waste to this idea of serverless entirely. And like, I want it to be gen- generally applicable because I think it's like, it's time for us to like acknowledge that it didn't live up to any of its promises for the most part. Uh, so I think, you know, the more ecosystems that can use this, uh, the better. And I think it is generally applicable to any language that has a reasonable concurrency model, because if they do not have this idea of like threading uh, or, or some you know, async callback, then you're not going to be able to do like a, a call and get the result back without shoving it into some job queue. So I do want to talk about job queues as well. But PHP specifically, the only way they could approximate this is to just rely on a job queue. And to me, that's like already the way that they're trying to offload work anyway. Yeah. So it's like they could have a job queue that's backed by a job pool that starts more, let's say, fly machines or some Kubernetes thing, uh, which could elastically scale and run more jobs. They could have some benefits there, but then they're still paying the price of like sending everything to the job pool. They're not getting this just, I want to slice off this this layer of my app and, and run it concurrently. It's like in Elixir, we can just, we can make a synchronous blocking call anywhere for as long as we want. And it doesn't have a cost of like blocking all of our web traffic, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, if I want to get a result of some expensive operation, I just do a flame call and I await the result or like, just like in JavaScript, we could do a await a promise and then it's done. It's way simpler and it's just taking your app code and scaling it versus having to think like, okay, now I need to put it into like my job queue. That's totally just like thrown over the fence, right? Now and now you're back in the land of how do I get the result back to the app code that started the job and you, then you're doing the dance. There's not really a way to do this without some concurrency primitive. I've definitely had to pull S3 buckets waiting for something to drop its it's the completed you know oh me too yeah and back in my ruby days it was like throw something in a job and then have like the client pull a controller which is pulling another service um (laughs) like have a job yeah you can try to approximate it but you're not going to get the the goal of the original flow of like i don't want to have to think about this right i just want to have this piece of compute run somewhere else but run my whole app but it does bring up a good point about job queues because this is a confusing part, even for people in the Elixir community. And I address it in the in the blog post I wrote of like, you know, I have a job queue. I'm using Open, which is fantastic. Like that does some level of auto scaling for me because Open has this idea of dynamic scalers or and Open can also grow a pool up and down to run the pool concurrency for the jobs. So what is Flame doing for me? And I think a lot of this confusion comes from like, especially if we're from Ruby or PHP, 
the only way like we conflated concurrency with durable work because the only way to do concurrent work in a language that has no concurrency is a durable queue. Like there's like, yeah. so like in a lot of people's minds, like that is the only way they can actually do any quote unquote concurrent work because they can't block anywhere else. So you already have this idea of like, well, I already have this concurrency quote unquote primitive that's doing this kind of elastic scale for me. And if we bring that over to Elixir, I think the confusion's still there because Oban does have an overlap. But I think the, the biggest distinction is like Oban and any job queue is for durable work. So for me, it's the same considerations. It's like, if I'm running a concurrent operation in my Elixir app, I can say like, okay, I just need task async. But then if the question comes up of like, well, I need to make sure this actually succeeds and is retried, then it's like, okay, I need durability. So I will, I'll use open. So it's the same considerations for me with, with flame. It's like, just like how I mentioned, I want your thought process to be literally just, do I want it to run concurrently? Yes or no. Do I want it to run elastically? Yes or no. It's the same level of considerations. Do I want it to be durable? Yes or no. And then if you want it to be durable, you put it in open. And if you still want scaled elastic execution, you can run a flame call in the open job. So really your durable pool is just about durability and nothing else. And then you scale the executions with flame Yeah, is, is basically the long answer. But to me, there are three distinct patterns and there is overlap. Like I want durable elastic execution. Well, then I just use open to spin up the job, call into a flame. If that fails, open's going to know about it. It's going to retry it, but you no longer couple these things because then if you, if you couple them together and you say, well, I have a job queue and then we're still back in the PHP Ruby, uh, you know, fault and mindset of this is the way I do concurrency. So it's like, it, it doesn't make sense to, to smoosh those things together. And one way that I've seen it architected with with Open, like a job queue, is they, they will have several queues, right? They'll have a mailer queue, they'll have a default queue, then, then they might have intense queue, right? That intense one might be for FFmpeg or some CPU intensive thing or, or with all this new AI stuff, maybe a GPU kind of thing. So they'll spin up architecture to specifically process that queue. And so it's on a beefier machine that, that can process it quicker. Right. But that machine is still spun up and probably 24 seven, if I had to guess. And so there could be a cost savings with implementing something like Flame, because now you're not upending all of your architecture. You could still have durable job queues. You could still have open stuff. You could still have an intensive, you know, queue if you really wanted to, but you could eliminate that intense queue and in your open job call out to spin up a Flame. And that flame is spinning up that GPU enabled, you know, machine at that point, right? Or that that beefier CPU machine, and then extinguishes itself once it's done. So instead of twenty four seven running of that beefier computer, you are now essentially what's the Amazon word for it? a spot instance? You're you're essentially uh, getting all of these little 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 tiny runs as you need it instead of all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I definitely agree. A lot of overlap with some durable job queues. A lot of the same like issues have been solved with things like Open, but you're absolutely right. There is a difference between durability and elastic goals here, and you can still get both. Yeah, and this is where like the language with the concurrency model is really important because like we just in the Open job, you make a flame call which is blocking, and it doesn't matter if that's transcribing a whole video. It's like that Open call just sits there happily. So it's like this idea of like being able to do synchronous execution is really important. I really like that point that you make about some people just maybe struggle because of the tools and the things where they they live and work. The idea of not being durable, not being recorded. That's how I do it. I have to put it into a database and track it. But then there are these types of work 
that maybe our app could be doing, or maybe it already is doing, that we don't actually care to know the pieces along the way, and we just want the end result. That's a good case for this. So I do want to talk about what is a good use case to help people kind of get their mind around it. So like in your blog post, you talk about, you know, generating thumbnails from videos. So you think like YouTube, right? If I upload a YouTube video, it's going to find at different time signatures, some different frame grabs of maybe this is a good thumbnail for you to pick. And those thumbnails are not critical. The ones I don't pick, they're not kept. They don't have to, you know, like, do they now have to be cleaned up? Do they have to be un, you know, like they're being tracked? It's like, now I have to get them out of my S3 bucket, you know, like that kind of thing. It's like having to make sure you clean up all that stuff because it, otherwise it's just going to like super build up. Your example, you're talking about a CPU intensive task. And I think that's an excellent use case of just saying, hey, there's something that needs to do a lot of crunching, but what it's doing is only relevant for the user while they're here. And we're going to throw away all the rest of the work. So I don't know, like, what are the use cases that you see? And I'm sure people will end up coming up with more to help people separate from like a job queue idea to like, what is a good use case for something like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Because this is just came up on Slack yesterday. Someone was asking about this open question. They already have open, then why reach for this? And then, you know, they also made the point that they almost always want durability which is, which is also a good point. So it's like, you knew, you do need to answer this question of durability. And like we said, they could, you know, you could be calling into flame inside open, but you do have these use cases, which make no sense to have durability. And the, the example I gave was kind of like this YouTube flow where with Phoenix live view, we can actually process the upload chunks from the user as they come over the wire. So the demo was as the chunks are coming over, we're transcoding it on the fly before it even finishes. So you're getting the thumbnails like as the file's actually uploading before it's done, uh, which is a pretty cool use case. But in, in this idea is like we're generating these thumbnails before the user has even like committed that video, right? They may just say, I'm not going to publish it. So you do have these kind of ephemeral artifacts that you may actually durably write at some point. But the fact that that they're actively uploading, it means that like putting it in a job queue doesn't make any sense. It's like the user is still sending us the file. Yeah, if we started a job worker that started up an F of MPEG shell and somehow we can communicate that to that job from the user's browser to the live view to the job worker could be made to work, maybe. <laughs> but the issue with these workflows is like the user may have just closed the tab. And this is where this kind of use case comes in, where it's like if you've ever been on ChatGPT and you leave, it's not going to keep churning your prompt. It's like you're not there and it matters that you're not there. Because if I just say someone hits enter across this very heavy workload and I have all this job queue backed up, job queues are usually almost always uh, unbounded as well. So you're like churning through this work for users that like may not even be in the app and maybe have left the app like a long time ago, depending on how backed up you are. So then like you can you get into this case where you're like, well, I, when the job starts up, I can try to see if the user is still there. So you get up with all, all these trade-offs of like, it makes no sense to durably write this thing if the fact that uh, you may not need it when, by the time the job runs, it makes no sense to even do the work of putting it in there. So this idea of ephemeral work is like, you know, video transcriptions is a good one. Uh, ML tasks is a really good one as well. Like we have all these open source models we can run on our own now and GPUs are expensive, like super expensive. 
You can even run them on CPU and also often get good results with like Llama CPP. So you have all this stuff where like it only matters if the user is there. And this is where Flame is perfect. Another example that I'm working on currently is like live video broadcasts. So I want to have a demo where it's a similar way to the thumbnail, but it's like I want to do like a one to many, like someone kind of like Periscope, if you remember that when Twitter bought them and then did nothing with it. Rip. Um, this idea of doing kind of live broadcasts of of yourself and then you don't have to persist after it's done. It's just like the viewers that are there that see it can interact with you, but I'm skipping the part of like putting it into durable storage to replay it, which you could do. It'd be a quick and easy demo with like kind of like a, if you want to persist this later, you know, it'd be a block of code to write that somewhere. Kind of like live beats, but for video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be, it's a great demo, but it's also like, you know, I think a lot of us are stuck in this durable job mindset, but like there are all kinds of interesting applications that like we could be building that are super easy with this programming model now. Yeah. Where it's not like, oh, how, how you know, how in the world would I do like live video transcriptions? I, I better go pay AWS for that. It's like, no, it's like, it should be like a very straightforward process to just write some Elixir and do it. And there's no job queue considerations there until you get to a point where you're like, okay, let's say we do want to record this for replay. It's like, well, at the end of that live broadcast, you know, or as it's being run, you could write a, you know, something into an open job to do some post-processing work on your, your final delivered artifact. But that's like a separate consideration for the fact of like doing this live, this live thing. Like, in fact, durable job doesn't make sense for, you know, live video transcription. So I think that answers it. I mean, I think video is an obvious one. ML tasks are an obvious one. And I'm sure there uh, are a bunch of others. Some other things that come to mind, just top of my head would be like uh, report generation or like PDF generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're starting up like a headless Chrome to like, you know, hit a privileged endpoint to generate a PDF to like email somebody. I know I've done that with like half the, uh, companies I've ever <laughs> consulted for, like you want to have pretty reports, but like you don't want to actually have it as an email template or like bring up like a PDF library. You're like, I have a browser. That's easy. CSS is easy. I just need to get that into a PDF. So you're like, oh, I just, I'll start a whole web browser uh, on server infrastructure. But anyway, so, I mean, stuff like that would be perfect uh, for this because that's not, that's not lightweight at all, you know, running Chrome to generate a PDF, but it'd be perfect for, for stuff like this. So like something less, I think that's less an exotic use case or like, you know, video stuff is fun to think about what people are like, Oh, I'm not writing a video service, but a lot of us are working on boring business apps that they generate PDFs. And that'd, that'd be a great example of this. Yeah. I was thinking of uh, like PDF transcoding, like where you can go from EPUB to Mobi to PDF to, you know, like all these different things like that, where, yeah, it might just be, we can do a bunch of work really fast, but we only care about keeping the pieces for the user. If they're there. Yeah. The user clicks in the UI, like, you know, transcode this to all the selected formats that I want. And then it goes like, bloop, bloop, bloop in your download folder, you have them. Mm-hmm. That's where like a job doesn't make sense there. Like they literally in real time ask for this. You're not like emailing them a link. You're just like dropping that as a download file. Uh, so in that, this is another case where like you would just do that in line in a live view or, or wherever, and it would just work. And then if you did want to, let's say, run these in the background on a schedule, like, like this isn't, credit back to open and durability. It's like, if you, if your use case is actually, you know, monthly, I want to send someone a report of, you know, the sales they made that month. Like, yeah, then you just run it in a open scheduler and it starts up, it calls into the same flame infrastructure and it does a thing. So I think it's just, it comes down to, like I said, just like this thought process of, do I want concurrency? Do I want elastic scale? Do I want durability? And like, there's overlap often. And sometimes there's not, and you need to make the choice based on that. I think in some ways we've been trained 
you know, to, to think <laughs> durability first. And then you just kind of think of what are all the things I'm going to need to do to make that happen. And so like, that's just kind of like, we don't even think about that. That's the choice we're making. We just, it's like the path with that's been worn and we've just, we know it. And uh, I think it might just take a little bit of time. Like I was thinking about this when, when I was, when I was thinking about flame, I was thinking about your approach to live view and being kind of messaging and having to keep explaining live view because it was just so different that even people in the electric community, they just had a hard time really getting their head around it. And I think this might be something like that too. I think it is similar. I think the, the Chrome headless Chrome PDF is actually a good one to touch on uh, a little bit more because I know that Mark, you, you talked about this with the video of like, you know, you generate all these thumbnails, but then you have to go clean them up. And I think a lot of people, a lot of armchair hacker news people may, may say like, oh, well, you're probably going to want to keep those somewhere for a small amount of time anyway. If it's just like this huge video, it's all going to have to, you know, opt into that for, you know, a real application, even if they don't decide to save it. But I think this headless Chrome is a really good example of why have that complexity of having to clean these files up. If like the user from the browser said, click download, like I can literally generate them inside the flame, send that as a download through to the end user and then it's gone, right? I'm not even like no part of my thought process requires at any level, any consideration for storing that. Uh, so like there, it actually makes no sense whatsoever to keep it around uh, long-term because like it, it literally is fire and forget. And to make it clear too, like the, the flame could be streaming that to the user. It's not like wait for the whole process to be done and then send it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The flame generates it. It sends it back to the collar. The collar sends it down the socket and it, it those are gone. Those bytes never touch disk anywhere. And that's the real goal here. And that's the same way, thing with a thumbnail generator. Those files were streamed up from live view uploads. They didn't hit a temporary file. We took the chunks, we sent them across to the flame, to FFmpeg, sent it as standard in. Uh, it sent us standard out of the thumbnails. We sent that back over distributed Erlang with a message to the live view. It sent it down to the browser, never touched disk at any point in the process, which is actually pretty incredible if you think about like, how most people would think about this problem. For the PDFs, it's the exact same thing. It's just simplified in that like you're just like, PDF, please. And then you send that back to the, the browser and it just sends it down. Yeah, there, there's no reason to write it to disk anywhere. And then then there's no reason to clean it up. So I think it will require a bit of a rethink. And I think it, it is like, whether you're thinking about durability, it's like it is going to be use case dependent. In my opinion, it's like if you do need CPU intensive operations, it should be at the elastic scale level of like this part of my code is going to be elastic instead of smashing it into the job queue. Because then you're still having to think about provisioning that job infrastructure on specific instances and managing those. Whereas if you put it inside the flame, you're essentially delegating the uh, actual instance management to Flame itself. And you, in most cases, don't even have to think about that. Like, it's not like, oh, shoot, I need to turn up the intensive pool now or configure that. It's like, no, it just, how many of these do I want to actually end up paying for? That's the max number. And then you just let it go. Yeah. Look at all the disks I'm not touching. Look at all the disks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at all the stuff I'm not doing. We're about out of time. But before we close out the conversation, I do want to talk about the developer experience. You know, you're talking about like this idea of, you know, it's kind of a little bit mind blowing. It really is to say, I'm going to be passing up this file and at no point does it touch disk. <laughs> and then I'm generating thumbnails and they're never hitting the disk. It never S3. It's like no storage anywhere. It's just all going to the user. That's an incredible developer experience that all I, I don't have to provision. I don't have to clean up. I don't have to track and do any of that. And then for the developer experience, one of the things that's always been a pain point for me with jobs is that it's a complete break in the mental flow. 
Like I'm looking at my code and it goes into a job queue and I don't know where it goes from there, right? Like where in the app is the code that actually gets executed? You know, like that just happens completely somewhere else. And the idea of having that just be all in line, like this is the process that I'm writing and this part needs to be scaled out and run on a different machine. That's that's kind of mind-blowing, right? Just to be able to say that I can just wrap this code and run it somewhere else, but then come back and continue. And so it's all that same flow is there. I, that's an incredible developer experience. Yep, that's the goal. Um, and yeah, and then you don't have to write like your testing and development infrastructure just like runs on the local backend, which is your laptop running in the VM that you're running in or the <laughs> compiled artifact. So it's like this idea of like the development story alone. I don't have to like simulate, run a Docker container that simulates all of AWS or, you know, most people don't even, my understanding, rarely test these things because it's such a pain. (laughs) Uh, Or you just connect it up to AWS and you pay to test it (laughs) or pay to develop it. (laughs) Um, Just silly, right? So yeah, you can just sidestep all that, which is fantastic. So are we going to have flames for local Wallaby integration tests? I'm thinking about it now. (laughs) (laughs) You could. I mean, well, so your local test is just running on your laptop. So it's like, it literally just runs the code. So it's not, but I mean, that's, I guess like I'm, I'm joking, but like now that I said it out loud, that's the point. Like you're, you could have this Chrome driver thing generating reports and then you just wrap it in a flame call and then your test locally could still test it. It generated the PDF correctly. Yeah. Cause like your flame call just runs runs the headless browser and you get the pdf so it's like it's just such a like it's almost too easy like it's it's funny like people have shared on twitter a couple of their like flame integrations and it's like nothing changes and you're like they're so (laughs) excited to tweet this thing where it's like it's boring because you're like that's it like it's more lines of code like in the mixed lock file and the mix you know and the just adding the pool to your supervision tree than it is to actually get the elastic scale because like literally it's just like flame.call and you're done you know like that's it but like that's the point for me it's like it almost is like uh anticlimactic because you're like what like and to mark's point like if you don't understand all of what's happening like my biggest worry was like people wouldn't realize how amazing it is because like there's so much there that just goes away so you're like i can see people thinking like i don't understand because like you're like wait what it's just like run somewhere else like all the variables get sent over there somehow and like it sends it back and in Elixir too, like you can open a file on the parent node and read it from the child and like the file would just be sent over there. That's just part of the way the VM works. There's just so much there that like, I wanted to convey in the post that that has a potential for people not understanding uh, if they're not into Elixir. But I do want to touch on something specific to Elixir, which is this idea of process placement. So we have this idea of like flame calls is a synchronous call to elastic infrastructure. Uh, you can do a flame cast, which is like an async, just like run this somewhere. I don't care about the result. Yeah, That will be applicable to most languages, that flame pattern. But in Elixir, we have this like these idea of processes, which we can start up a supervision tree and it's a long lived uh, lightweight thread essentially. And it does work. So with flame where you would typically do like dynamic supervisor, start child or task supervisor, start child where you're like, I'm going to start this process, this or tree of processes and have it do some work. And I want to supervise flame has this idea of place child, which is like, just run this supervision tree somewhere elastically. I don't care where, I mean, the same idea of, of a calling a, a function. You're just like, place this process on one of these things or start a new one. I don't care, run it for me. And then that will have the same like max and currency, uh, elastic scale primitives as like regular calls. 
But the cool thing with Elixir is like one, we can run this whole long live process somewhere else, but then to get like messages back. So like the, the thumbnail generator was running a process that I had written in my app outside of flame. I put it in flame and then like sending the live view, which is a process, the thumbnails is just a send from that running thumbnail generator. And that code didn't change. So this is like something very unique to Elixir where to get the work that's being generated statefully on the fly somewhere else, we didn't have to even think about like, well, well, shoot, how do I get it back to like the parent node? It's like, no, it just internally, it does a message send. And if that thing was on a different server now, doesn't matter. The VM's like, oh, I need to send it over here. So there's some really, really interesting things. Like I'm, I'm most excited about this idea of process placement with Flame as it relates to Elixir, because you can start really thinking about like, oh, I can start up like a whole stateful thing inside a Flame server and do work there. And then Flame, you know, won't idle itself down as long as it has these processes that it's watching over. And if that thing dies, it's going to notify the parent. So you have like a basically distributed, supervised, elastic processes. So anyway, that's something specific to Elixir, which I think is really exciting to me. I love that quote that we're removing problems, not trying to solve them. So I'm curious if you have any idea of what the next problem you might be removing might be. <laughs> Oh yeah. So I, I need to, uh, live, live you one on use a ship finally. So I need to pay down my issue tracker debt there. <laughs> That's not new though. So to flame is a, just a small building block. So it's like, it's, it's actually a tiny library. Like Erlang VM just provides all this stuff for us. So I think other languages that implement the flame pattern are going to have to write way more code. They'll have to make like a much worse version of like the Erlang VM in some regards, because like you have to remotely monitor things that are running on the flame. And then also if the parent goes away, that flame child needs to be like, oh no, like I need to shut down. Like there's all this stuff back and forth that people are going to re-implement basically remote process supervision. And for us, like that, that is like literally remote process supervision, remote node monitoring is just built into the VM. So flame is the, like a tiny library for Elixir because all this stuff's built in. Other libraries are going to, or languages are going to have to write a lot more code. But because it's this small building block, I am interested in things that we could build on top of it. I think it's probably too early to talk about anything in my head right now, but None of this is a promise. This is just like in my head over the last 10 years, it's like the whole idea of like, we have the technology, we should be able to do this. But <laughs> virtual durable actors are something that like I've always wanted to play with from like a nerd sniping perspective. It's like we have this amazing runtime to build stateful applications. We should be able to have this idea of like a durable gen server that can start up and like pick up where it left off. And it would be great if that thing could just run anywhere on the cluster. So it's like, very hard distributed problems are, are in there, but that's like the kind of ideas that have always been in my head when I have time to maybe focus and play with them. I'll, I'll look in there. But beyond that, some less ambitious things would be like a durable pub sub adapter. So I would like to tackle that sooner than later in Phoenix because right now it's there's no guarantees. Uh, so if you're using pub sub and expecting a message to arrive, uh, I have bad news for you. <laughs> but then, you know, that's mitigated by you know, job queues and durable queues as, as people already use. So it's like, there are answers there. Like anything else, I'm trying to like kick the can down the road for adopting any extra complexity. So it's like this idea of like having to bring in Kubernetes. It's like at a certain point you, and a company, like I understand where you end up with like a bunch of different services and different languages. You need to try to manage all those things as one unit. Uh, it makes sense to have like these tools, right? So I think like Kubernetes could be great uh, if you're Google. Yeah, it makes sense. But like the idea is like, what if we didn't have to do any of that in, for as long as possible, right? So it's like- How about no? <laughs> right, so the idea is like, just like my meme of like the, the Grim Reaper, it's like, I'm not saying that like these things are never useful. Just like LiveView isn't saying that 
single page apps never make sense. It's like the idea is just like for as long as possible, the idea is just like kick that can down the road and never have to think about it. And I think for the vast majority of developers out there, that's like the answer is like always like never you're never going to get to that. I'm going to say the word scale, uh, but it's like in the context of Elixir, it's like you're going to scale like extremely well. It's like I think all, you know, all of WhatsApp historic, you know, the, the famous like they ran on 10 servers to support you know, millions of users per server. So it's like this idea of like, Elixir really gives us this, this mentality of like, I'm never going to need more than this. Yeah. For me, it's like someone might say, oh, well, eventually I'm going to need Kubernetes. Eventually I'm going to need this Lambda thing. Can't think of a a good reason other than if you want to adopt all those proprietary services, but let's say it makes sense for your organization. And then sure, like you do that, but the idea isn't like, oh shoot, I need to classic the scale. I guess I'm just going to immediately jump over to AWS. So I think the, the the term obviate is what I like to use. Fancy word, but it's like, I want to remove the need for all these things for as long as possible, which I think for most of us is basically to be forever. So that's my goal. I'm ruthlessly eliminated, eliminating all these concerns uh, for, for everybody else. All right. You heard it here first. PHP plugin written by Chris. We're going to have an Atlas V2. We're going to have GPU accelerated SQL statements coming up soon. <laughs> we could. So actually, I, I do want to bring up. <laughs> Wait, so what? <laughs> To plug fly a little bit here. So we do have GPUs now, which Mark and I have been playing with, which is it just aside, a really fun perk of uh, working at an infrastructure company is like getting to play with really expensive hardware that I would never pay for myself. <laughs> but part of that is like uh, the super neat here because I can run my app as a Docker container. So with what, what Flame allows is I can start up a pool of GPU runners and run that container on a GPU instance to run my ML tasks. And like that would, that just works today. So it's like really, really fascinating workflows here where flame, you know, it's about running your app and the same container, but that can be running on different types of hardware and like, but you're not managing any of that deployment and like, and I'm not either. So like, even as like the flame library implementer, like basically the the orchestration layer becomes just like not even implementation detail. Like it just goes away because like the pool almost handles the orchestration for you. So if that makes any sense at all. So it's like this idea of again, removing problems. It's like, it's not like Flame is really trying to like manage the orchestration. It's just like, no, like as resources are needed, they're started. And then as they're not needed, they go away. And for most people, that's like the beginning and end of thinking about, well, shoot, how do I run concurrent uh, GPU workloads? It's like, I'll just run them in GPU instances. If you need more, you start more and like Flame handles it. But like, it's the pool is like not much code. I saw a blog post recently about, using machine learning and GPUs to do spam detection for email, right? And that's the kind of thing where maybe it is durable, but you know, you could just, you want to deliver those emails as fast as possible. You don't want to have to batch them up and run them uh, on some interval and slow down someone getting, you know, the, the message that they're waiting for. So you can just have them be, you know, scaled up hardware, throw it at a, mach- a GPU and then quickly figure out, oh, yes, this is clean, this is flagged, and then send it on. And you don't actually have to persist anything. It just becomes more of a real-time filter, but it's using scalable hardware. Which is what you want. I mean, just like to to like riff on that problem a little bit. I hadn't thought about the, the email flow, but like this makes sense because like your job queue is, you know, your durable uh, queue, whatever you're using for these emails, you know, you want it to be durable, is going to be running through either processing them, delivering them to a mailbox, doing whatever you're going to do. And this is where like you doesn't make sense where like I'm running my open queue on like a GPU worker, right? Because it's like these things are expensive. It's like, you know, I don't want to, you know, the cost of running that thing shouldn't be like, oh, I don't really need to be doing 
these GPU things, but since I want to run GPU things there, I'm just going to turn through regular work. But also it's like you most likely if you're implementing these things, like you want to have a deadline. So it's not like, oh, I couldn't do spam detection. I guess I won't, like you said, Mark, I guess I won't send the email because over-provisioned on the GPU side and what you just drop that on the floor, try again later. Like you most likely are going to be like, I have a deadline to call into the service. If it fails, like it's not the end of the world. Maybe someone gets, you know, spam slips through, which still happens today anyway. So it's like, I think all these use cases come out where it's like, it's fine if like, if this fails, even if I'm running durably, the open job picks up and it's like, I'm going to deliver this to your mailbox. Oh, but let's check it for spam first. I have a deadline. That thing never gave me a response. I'm, I'm going to send it to your mailbox and hey, I'll do a better job next time. Very cool. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And hopefully this won't have the the longer lag that live you did where it, I think it honestly just took people longer to figure out like I have a spa. Why would I want this? It's like, you know, it just took it took some time for people to really get the idea of no, this is really cutting out whole sections of your app that you have to write and maintain API layers and serialization and the separate everything, you know, like the, the CI pipelines and the, all of it. I, oh, I'm so grateful for, for the work you did on live view. Uh, but anyway, this is awesome. And so you kind of teased, Hey, you're playing with something, uh, some video periscope like thing sounds interesting to you may do something around that. No commitment. Thank you so much, Chris. Are you going to be speaking anywhere? Any uh, upcoming things you want to share? Yeah, I'll be in uh, Lisbon, Portugal for ElixirConf EU. Uh, I think that's April next year. And that's that's my closest speaking gig. So yeah, check out ElixirConf EU. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Well, let's get on to our more juicier subjects. I know Flame is kind of boring now. You said it, right? But there's this <laughs> other library that you manage. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's been about like 10 years, I think, actually. And it's grown so much. I want I want to learn a little bit about this Ecto alternative called Atlas. Can you tell me about this? <laughs> I'm so tired of Ecto. I want, I want more objects in my life. Tell me about Atlas. So I think, yeah, Atlas was probably my first Elixir library. I'm trying to think if I started that before Phoenix, and I believe I did. Yeah, probably 10 years ago. So the, the funny thing with Atlas, it was it was basically like, how can I get active record into Elixir? So like <laughs> yeah. lots of macros. But basically, I learned enough through Atlas to write Phoenix, I'm pretty sure is the progression. And I basically got like, I made Jose uncomfortable enough to like have to reach out to me. So that was like maybe <laughs> my, my success in getting uh, Jose as a friend was getting him looking at Atlas. And so basically like he, he sent me a message on IRC. Uh, this was 10 years ago when he saw Atlas and he was like, very kindly was like, he like gave me a reading list of like, here's some things to actually like, <laughs> please don't do this. Like, see, like seriously, <laughs> like in like the, the nicest way was just like some critiques and some things that could be done better. Like here, check, you know, read this, read this book and let me know what you think about this pattern. And of course I, you know, realized that it's completely the wrong approach, but I, you know, I was basically trying to reimplement the stuff from Ruby, you know, it's, it's a joke, but it was a necessary, I guess, humble beginning there of like, I did actually learn something through the process. I was able to, you know, get in touch with Jose. And I actually think Ecto did borrow some idea from Atlas, but like it was oh, almost, really? it was almost all bad ideas. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of learning. Yeah. yeah. This is before maps and structs ex existed. So it's like, this is way, oh, that's right. Yeah. So I think the way I was like nesting uh, a record, so this is when records were a thing uh, in Elixir. I was nesting a record for like the, 
ecto what 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 is like the ecto schema atlas had like it was like nesting a record inside the module anyway i think like i'm not it was just like a very tiny thing where jose saw like not only was it a critique but he was like oh this thing you're doing here is actually really interesting and really cool and they borrowed that so it was a great way to learn some things learn how to not do some things but also you know interact with jose i mean every interaction with jose i think from anyone who's probably ever talked to him has been pleasant but I think it was also, you know, the, the start of kind of collaborating with Jose on, you know, a number of projects. 